Hey guys, I'm Stephanie Wallace, and this is Independence Radio, a broadcast of Independence Care System. Independence Radio is a series of conversations with members of the ICS community about issues of health care and independent living for people with disabilities and older adults. I had the honor of interviewing a man whose work and vision has impacted my life. Rick Serpin, founder and president of ICS, shares with us his life's experience and how ICS came to be. Enjoy the conversation. Where did ICS come from? Where did this idea come from? Well, I can tell you that by answering it through how did we have an impact on your life? Oh, that's very clever. Um, You impacted my life because when I became diagnosed, when I got diagnosed with a disability and now all of a sudden I'm thrown into this world and it's like, you have this, you need this, here's your walker or whatever, bye. There was no uh, introduction into the world of disability for me. It was just thrown in. And um, I started to become more isolated, you know, to the point where I was, I'd stopped going out with my family because I'm trudging along because they were kind of, you know, everybody was living life and I was slowing down. And uh, it was to the point where I was at home sitting on my bed every day just watching TV or just listening to TV, not even really watching. And I developed this dent in my bed, you know, it was just like a, a dent in my bed from where I would sit every day. And, um, you know, I got introduced to ICS. I was walking in Harlem and Chris Noel, uh, he was in outreach at the time. He gave me a flyer, stuffed it in my bag. And then I finally, one day, you know, let me check it out. Didn't even realize what ICS was, but I knew that there was this social part going on. I tried to call, nobody answered (laughs) for a while. Had a social worker call and they told me to come in. And I came in and I saw this place that was much different than what I had in my mind. In my mind, I imagined a adult daycare facility full of old, broken people or old and broken people where they gave you slop for lunch, maybe. You know, and you could crochet and glue stuff. Yep. That's what I thought. And then I got there. I came on a movie night. And um, I was really... I was surprised and I was amazed because here was this very open, warm, and welcome environment, and the people were incredible. And every the people time, being just everybody in the room. Uh, yeah, the members, and especially I, I have a very, very soft spot for Will. <laughs> you know, he is incredible. He really is. His dedication. Um, and so every time I would come to... And Will is the person who runs the... Right, the right. He runs night, movie night, night Friday night hangout. Yes. So, you you know, there was movie night, then they come back, and there's Friday night hangout. And on Tuesday, I came to the writing, and there were things to do, things that I was interested in, and seeing people who had disabilities but were not broken and who were living. And I would leave ICS, and I would always have these ideas, pow, 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 you know, firing off in my head, you know, Oh, I wonder if I could do this. I wonder if I could do that. And and it just made me alive again. And and that's why how it's changed my life. And now I'm doing this. <laughs> and that is the best reason in the world to have an organization like this. Your story and hopefully many other people's stories. I think that there are many other people's stories. It um and it's all because we 
um, I'm a quiet person and I observe a lot and I listen a lot and hopefully understand what I hear and there are a lot of people here like that and we um, we created we wanted to create a place where people like you could be alive instead of broken and feeling broken and um, we're not always successful but we sure try hard to do that and there's it's it's there's no other reason other than we want a place that's safe for us and safe for everybody else who's part of this community and you know like what you said about um people were wonderful they i mean it was all the people it was the staff it was the, the people all the people in the room all the people who were members the people who were staff and they get to be the place works because they get to be who they are and, and they're authentic in themselves and um if you're encouraged to support the good side of all of that, then it shines through a lot. I was I just um, introduced you to my aide, who's also my daughter, and uh, she notices the 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 environment. She she notices it, and we were talking a little earlier about just being. You know, ICS is an insurance company, and. Um, it's regulated, isn't it, Charles Well, yes. you know. But no, my point is, to, where else can you go? What other business can you go to that feels like a family? You know, this, this to do what you're doing in the environment that you do, in medical, that's enough to just, you know, <laughs> so many regulations, so much red tape, so much this, but to still make it feel personal for people and to make it feel like a family to where even me, me as a consumer and my aide, my, my grandchildren come to ICS. This place, it affects all the parts of my life, even down to what I love the most, my grandchildren. I mean, your story is totally reflective of what we set out to do, what we try to do every day. Um, you're right in guessing that it's very hard to do in the self-care environment. It is not easy at all. It takes its toll on some of us who are trying to be a buffer between the regulations in that world and, and what life should be like as more of a, a, a community and a family first that we all can participate in. But, but how did you get there? How did you get to, we need an ICS, we need a place like this? How did you get there? I think for anybody who sits in my position, you, um, particularly as a founder of an organization, do you pull together different strands of personal experience? That um, one of those was that I um, had had an aunt who's since passed away who had cerebral palsy and um, major speech impairment, and um, very difficult to understand, but. Both my sister and I spent a lot of time with her, and we were able to understand her. And um, and my dad was very protective of her, and she, um, but she resented how that he was overprotective. And so in that, and she would tell us that when we were kids. And um, learning, you you know, I, I deeply respected and loved my dad. And here, my aunt was complaining about what he was doing, and it was so understanding the different sides of. One story was was a really really important thing. Um, I made, and it happened that my father had a business um, of selling food to 
uh, restaurants and and uh, one of those places we sold we made deliveries to was Willowbrook Developmental Center, which is infamous as uh, the one-time largest um, institution for people with developmental disabilities in the country. Um, it has since been deinstitutionalized and doesn't exist. Um, I made deliveries there when I was in high school, and it was the most awful place I had ever have ever been in. Um, and had a deep impact on the visual images of what life was like there made, had a deep impact on me. And I later came to work with a coalition of parents who were actively uh, working to deinstitutionalize it um, when I was in my 20s. What I always thought was the disadvantage of being quiet it was turned out, I think, to be a major advantage in life that I could watch. I hated how I always felt on the outside. I hated how mean we can be as a society and I wanted to create a place that I always wanted to create a place that um, wasn't like that and that could be a a haven for people Um, and now 30 years ago I started a place for workers people who did home care work Um, it's called Cooperative Home Care Associates it's owned by the workers on a one person one vote basis they control the board of directors um, I was the first president and um, was for 15 years. I'm still chairperson of the board and it's part of the network of companies, uh, organizations in ICS. But And I think it, too, is a wonderful place and workers feel safe there in the way that consumers and people with disabilities feel safe here. And uh, so anyway, I, it comes from strands of experience that um, are very deeply ingrained and, and images that come to mind when you ask that question and there is there's not a simple answer to it. Okay, so you grew up on Staten Island. You I said did. your father had a shipping business? A small small wholesale food business. Okay. Um, and my the fam- my mother and my sister we all worked in it. It was not a successful business, at least financially. Uh, we learned a lot of things. We learned, learned some things about how to manage and some things about how not to manage. Um, I learned how to do hard work. Um, I wanted to show the truck drivers that I was not, um, I didn't intend to be treated as the boss's son, oh. and, and they were very happy to let me carry everything. That was very <laughs> um, I learned a lot from them, though, and I, um, it was, so the, the business was its whole world unto itself, and the warehouse that we worked in was, was like our second home and it was actually hard we we would stay in the warehouse till late at night repairing the truck so we could go and make deliveries and by the last days of the business which it, uh, we borrowed from loan sharks we did uh, oh, it was my. it was not it was a different angle it was not the kind of life that I could go into school the next day and talk about what happened oh. <laughs> at the workout warehouse the day before um, but we spent a lot of time we spent a lot of time together. We, I, it was a great set of experiences, even when it wasn't great. great. But Sanon itself was a very, it wasn't a safe place for me. I didn't have, um, I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't, I felt like what I believed in was not the common Staten Island set of beliefs. Oh. Uh, uh, believed in about the way people should be treated, about um, workers and unions, and um, basically it, uh, Staten Island is well known as the most conservative part of New York City, and and I was not the most conservative right. person in right. New York City. So, um, and it was how I 
grew up and my parents supported me in growing up that way and I read a lot and um, cared about history a great deal and and um, and I believed I, I happened to care about words a lot and I believed in the ideals of democracy and equality and didn't had trouble finding the reality of about democracy. Now, now you say you were quiet. I am. I still well, am. Oh okay okay. Were you just quiet naturally? Did not uh, fitting into your environment is that what made you quiet? You think, or I think I was quiet naturally. I think the environment reinforced uh, that I I didn't want to get smacked down for saying what I thought. Right, right, right. But I think I I think I was quiet naturally, and I you know I mean I, it happens that you know I'm I'm more than fully grown at this point, and <laughs> that um, <laughs> and that this is like my home. So it, I I am not quiet here but but um but I also don't talk a lot here right okay. but, but I don't I don't I am not inhibited in any way okay 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 now when you now you were while you were in high school you were working with your dad yes okay and you 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 mentioned that uh they didn't treat you as the boss's son and you didn't want to be treated as the boss's the truck son. drivers yes Okay, now you, I'm, I'm imagining you, I don't know why, my, my imagination goes to you being a quiet young man, shy. Were you shy? So I thought so, um, but recently a couple of people have said that, that I wasn't shy, I was just quiet. Okay. Um, I think I was shy. Okay, because I'm, I'm imagining you in this environment of truck drivers, mm-hmm. you know, and being quiet and shy it doesn't seem to fit it doesn't fit um the way i dealt with it was i would just ask them a lot of questions we'd be stuck on the truck um driving making deliveries and i couldn't drive for for the first several years um because i was doing this how old were you when you started 12 10 12. oh wow yeah um so my way of dealing with it was to ask questions and Mm -hmm. ask more questions okay they were they were happy to talk. And right, I, right. I was happy as long as I could come up with the questions, and mm-hmm. <laughs> that was that's uh, okay. how I did it. Okay. So, what, were you were you like uh, exposed to things that maybe you shouldn't have? By because I'm thinking, grown men, truck drivers. I was um, I was in a situation. I, th- yes, the answer is yes. I was. Um, there was the local loan sharks came by every um, two weeks to collect money. One was a baker, one was a local biker, one was a tavern owner, one of them had a tavern owner carried a gun. Um, Did you ever feel in danger? Did you? I was too young to, to know this. My, I, what I sensed was my mom felt great danger. She oh, was okay. working as the person who controlled the books, um, the financial books. And so um, my dad didn't feel a sense of danger. My mind is seeing this as a movie. <laughs> really? It's, it, it, <laughs> well, it, I'm seeing a movie. Well, it's, yeah. it's funny that it was just it just things that happened in one's life. And I think that lots of things like this ha- happen in people's lives what? that you just... Um, um, and I don't... Um, so I was going to say I didn't come from a poor family. We faked being middle class. We were not a middle class family. We faked being middle class. Um, but my mother had a tremendous investment in faking middle class mm-hmm. uh, and, and wanting to be middle class. And she was raised in a middle class family. Okay. Um, and um, she married the wrong guy. <laughs> well, the wrong guy or the wrong guy for a middle class life? Wrong guy from middle class life. Okay. She she loved him and 
Um, and I don't, I don't think she would say she had a she had a, a different life than she thought she would have. But okay, she, yeah. all right, and she expected. To yeah. Do you is your uh, is your sister still alive? Oh yes, she's four years younger, um, and she is a she lives in Philadelphia. has a, is a healthcare consultant. And um, as people will say, she's the shooter, um, one who, who's better at making a living than a good income than than, than me. And mm-hmm. and she, um, but we have a ninety. Our mother is now ninety seven, oh, and, and we wonderful. both take equal responsibility for um, caring for her. Uh, she now has a home health aide, but mm-hmm. we also provide care for her. And Joe comes up from Philadelphia. Um, two-hour ride to to do that every other week, and um, she 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 turned out to be a really good person as well. Now you mentioned Willowbrook and and being a part of a, you said a coalition of parents. That, I, I supported a coalition of parents. Okay, now how did you get involved with the with the parents? Was that you know, was it directly because of what you saw in at Willowbrook? Or? I, I was director of what was then called the Community Action Agency, and I um, and those parents groups um, had come to know me a little bit, and and um, I began working with them, and it just grew into something much larger. And um, there was a, a major court case that resulted in the institutionalization, and I was asked by some of those parent leaders to serve on a legal body that um, is called the Consumer Advisory Board that acted as legal guardians for the thousand um, people at Willowbrook who did not have parents. Um, And so we were responsible for their placement in the community, uh, which we were able to do. Um, It was an incredible, it was about 3,000 people at Willowbrook, I believe. Um, and it was a massive, uh, it was a massive institution and a massive undertaking to, um, to get rid of the institution. And they were dispersed to like, uh, like community settings and group homes and oh. individual apartments. And, oh, okay. uh, and actually, one of our first members at ICS was a member of the Wilbur class. Oh, okay. Wow. And you you mentioned um, uh, companies that are also involved with. Uh, yeah. ICS, could you explain so, that? So, Cooperative Home Care Associates is a okay. is thirty years old. It's a worker cooperative. It is so it's only controlled by the workers who do home care aid work. Um, and uh, PHI is a nonprofit advocacy and research organization that that focuses on direct care work, and that's national. Cooperative is a local um, okay. agency. So, with with cooperative, now you said the aids. Or is that the proper term? Yes, yes. Okay, because sometimes I don't know what the proper terms sure. are. But they control and own the company. They do. That's now. Do you keep a lot of aids that way? Does that you know? Because I I know aids they you know, go in and out of companies. They they don't. So we have we've always had um, a very high retention rate. the The important thing is that the company has to be good enough to own, mm-hmm. and if the company is good enough to own, then people stay. Okay. And um, and it is as much about wages and benefits as it is about the culture of the company. That when pe- if you were to walk into the to the reception area at Cooperative, you might I think you might very well feel the same way if you were an aide as you did when you walked into Friday night. Oh, okay. Night. Uh, oh, that's wonderful. When you create an environment like that, people want to stay. Yeah. You know, and people want don't mind coming in to do. What they're supposed to do, and they do it, 
cheerfully because you have some of the greatest employees over at uh in Brooklyn. Oh yeah, yes, definitely. Not that this is not, but I'm no, a Brooklyn I think, girl. Uh, I think you're right. <laughs> you so. know, and 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 you just it's just anyway. You know, I can't say enough. So you know what? But I <laughs> just want to say one thing, which is that one person can't create an environment, and what I do as the director is create the boundaries for the environment. People fill the space and all sorts of people, and the bigger the organization, the more people fill the space. And so it's what you said, the second thing you said about one, the wonderful people in Brooklyn and the wonderful members who come. And that is, it's the spirit of a lot of different kinds of people in right. that space. That's true at Cooperative, that's true here. Well, tell me about the member council meetings and why, they, why, why you have the member council meetings. We have the member council for the same reason why we have a staff council at Cooperative Home Care. That it's a a fundamental belief that members are major stakeholders. We should hear from them. Their voices. It should be a two-way street. Um, in a typical organization, the staff control everything, and and there's no way of no. And when the staff control everything, they create their own worldview about what's the right thing to do and what's not and never get feedback from anybody and if you do get feedback you might do it through a formal survey that really just people just check off boxes if they check it off anything at all so i believe that the life of an organization is at the is at the level of a floor to think about it and and um people managers the higher up you go mostly don't care about what happens at what happens on this floor um what happens in friday nights and and whether it's good or bad and um from my point of view we need to know and we need to change if we're not it's, it's a reciprocal relationship that um we need each other for it to be a really great place we need each other and if we don't care then if you don't care then you don't have a member council um, I think what happens in the member council and what happened in staff council at, at Cooperate is it creates more expectations that that people will care and be able to respond. And I would say we don't always do a great job of responding, that the expectations sometimes, if not often, exceed what we can do. Um, and even though we get better, we never, ever get to the place where we really um, meet people's expectations. And that's a good thing and a bad thing. Um, I, I kind of get through life by managing my expectations. Um, and um, we may have done a bad thing by, t- by giving the impression that we can, we will try to do everything we can and we, there are real limits about what we can do personally and what financial resources we have. At the same time, I would never change the staff. We will always, always, we will always have a member council. What happens? We have a staff council here as well, and the same phenomena exists. That, that when people are asked to talk about what they don't like and what their problems are, they have a long list. Mm-hmm. That's. Now, you said that you can't always uh, meet the expectations when when you have a member council meeting and you have members letting you know what their problems are or whatever. How do you, I mean, because some things, I've been in member council meetings where there is the same complaint. The next one, the next meeting, and the next meeting, and the next meeting. When I come in and make a a complaint or a concern, I'm not going to say complaint, when I voice a concern, I expect that concern to be addressed. 
And if you address it and you tell me, okay, talk to this one or talk to that one, or we'll look into it, I'm expecting that we're moving forward. So if it's something that you really can't handle, or are we, how do you let the consumer know that? Because you start to feel as a consumer, if if the same concern is brought up over and over again, you start to feel like you're not being heard or that it doesn't matter. So I think there are, there are two kinds of complaints and two kinds of responses. One is that, so at the last um, member council meeting, there were several complaints about transportation. And the, and the people who were raising those questions had raised those issues before. Um, and for, going back from the beginning. And, and it's, so we set up a committee we asked the committee to meet with staff to define the issues, and they were making complaints about two particular providers who happened to be our biggest providers. And we said, we, we will bring in the managers of those two places to talk with the committee. What we know, as because we've experienced this forever, that there's a deep systemic issue in transportation. Everybody has this problem. Every managed long-term care plan has this problem. And as, as you said, I could show you notes from meetings that go back to 2000 about the transportation issue. Um, so I honestly don't know if we can fix the transportation problem. What I do know is that we can broaden the number of people who understand it and then possibly figure out different th- ways to deal with it. Rather, I don't think we will solve transportation right. in New York City mm-hmm. for people with disabilities. I do think that um, we can bring people, uh, members, into conversations with the providers and figure out, are there things that we can do that would make it better than the way it currently works? The second thing is, and this relates to transportation and anything else we do, is there are issues, there are complaints that also feels intractable, meaning that they happen forever, where we simply, we know something and the member does not. And we don't tell the, we don't tell the member that this part was ordered for their wheelchair and we're waiting for it to be delivered. Um, we know it was ordered. <laughs> we did our job, mm-hmm. but we didn't complete the loop. And so the, mem- the member thinks we didn't respond at all when in fact we responded halfway and the, we have to get it done the rest of the way, but we, um, they have no idea we did that. It's, it's not only a, a staff, and maybe isn't fundamentally a staff issue, it's having a process that, that really um, is enforced about making sure that we tell people what's going on with the, their issue. Now, since the beginning of ICS, you've grown grown (laughs) 20 people originally 65 friendship members today wow now how has that how has that affected ICS and and how you're able to deliver service to the members it's affected us in several different ways one is that we um we're no longer a small community of people, so we're much bigger. Um, scale has an effect on community. It, it does it. We, none of us as staff know everybody in the way that we used to. You know, if if you if one thinks about high school as a place that I, 
I went to high school where there were it was small for New York City, but 500 people in the uh, in a class, yeah, and and so 2,000 people in the school. Um, you knew a lot of the people. You walked in the halls, and if you didn't know everybody's name, you knew who they were. Um, once you get to this many, there's no way you, you don't know everybody's name. I don't. I'm, I don't even know every staff person's name anymore, and that doesn't feel good. That 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 is not the same sense of community that we used to have. The other thing is, it makes it harder. Staff have different levels of skills than they, um, than they had before, and you don't know what they know and don't know. Um, so size has a big impact that you one have one has to get comfortable with. I don't know have have to know everybody, but somebody here has to know people, and they have to feel in a group. They have to feel like they have access to and know the right people. Um, that's a huge leap. That. Every system that we developed from when we were small no longer applies. Mm. And it's probably been rebuilt five times or, or something like that. We started out with a clear mission of serving people with physical disabilities. We now have a very large feral elderly population, which is has a lot of same functional limitations, but also is very different, different about who the people are, different about what what their needs are, and um, and obviously the the disabled population was much younger than the than mm-hmm. the the frail elderly population, and I think that the the other big thing that's happened over the course of the sixteen seventeen years is that Medicare has become a much bigger actor in our life, and that that Medicare is far more prescriptive and regulated than Medicaid is. And so that we have, we have, we as staff have to kind of to navigate the waters of, of a very prescriptive regulatory world, and try and not have that harm anybody who's a member here. Right, which right, is difficult. Right. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you how do members who remember days of old and the you know when things were smaller, how. What what type of response do you have from them, and you know, as far as uh, what ICS has become? Because I think people sort of feel like it's so personal for them, what it used to be, and like now maybe they feel like people don't care. When I know you do, but <laughs> that's personal for all of us, meaning me included. That um, I wish we didn't have to grow. That financially, I wish we could be the place that we used to work. Um, it was much better for me, and I feel like we would have learned what we had to learn and become an increasingly better place. Um, and it would have been at a scale that was very, very human and comfortable. Um, we would not have survived. If we stayed that size, we would right. not have survived financially. And in the world of state government, we are even smaller than the state would like us to be. Oh. So the growth is not a, a choice. We, we actually have grown much more modestly than several other places, and we, that was a choice. But, but getting to be bigger is, um, is really not a choice. And, and how we manage the growth is a choice. And what we become in, in relationship to the state is, is a negotiation. It's not entirely our choice. But um, I... My job has changed a great deal. Uh, my role has changed a great deal in the organization. 
lots of members feel it, lots of staff feel it. Staff will say, um, oh, we, staff who were around for in the early days will say, I know we're becoming more corporate. Um, and, and I look at them and say, you know, corporate compared to other places that you know, this mm-hmm. is not corporate. Yeah. Um, you know, you, I'm not wearing a suit and tie. You're not wearing a suit and tie. Right. <laughs> what are we talking about? Mm-hmm. And we're having very honest interaction. I, that is not corporate. Um, and I would say that to any member as well. But I would also say, yes, we had to make changes. And, and we, if we didn't do it, if we didn't adapt, and if we weren't resilient, we wouldn't be here. What are you, what are your uh, your hopes for ICS and for the future? I don't think there's any question that there are some requirements that the state has that for us to exist that we become bigger, probably ten thousand member organization, not tomorrow, but right. sometime in the next five years, that we um, have a Medicaid and Medicare program and that, that we include, meaning that we include primary and acute care as well as long-term care that I worry about Medicare dominating Medicaid which basically means the prescriptiveness I worry about primary and acute being the focus when what our folks really need is long-term support and I worry that um, that it just won't feel right um, to people and that as we grow, we will get farther and farther away from our roots. And it, I'm going to switch from my worries. That because both the leadership and the core staff here care so much about preserving our roots, and that there's really a strong leadership group that, that understands what that means, I feel that if we fail to preserve our roots, that will be because the forces that against that are so much greater than our abilities. It won't be because we didn't do it, uh, didn't try very hard or didn't do it reasonably well. Mm-hmm. It may be beyond us to do, um, but it won't be for lack of trying, and trying very well. Okay. Thank you, Rick. This was good. This was good. All right. That was Rick Serpent, founder and president of ICS. You have been listening to Independence Radio, a broadcast of Independence Care System, a community-based nonprofit agency serving the Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens, and dedicated to supporting older adults and adults with physical disabilities and chronic conditions to live at home and participate fully in community life. To learn more, visit www.icsny.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephanie Wallace. You can catch my live talk show, Laid, Love and Intimacy for the Disabled, on Monday nights at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on blogtalkradio.com slash laid. Bye-bye.